Welcome back to the Dealmakers Podcast Show with serial entrepreneur Alejandro Cremades, best-selling author of The Art of Startup Fundraising and co-founder at Panthera Advisors. In this podcast, we ask our guests about their successful acquisitions and financing rounds. Hey guys, so just a quick overview here on Panthera Advisors as I think it might be of value to you. So Panthera Advisors exist in order to help founders that are in the process of raising capital or get their company acquired. I actually started the company out of incredible frustration because during my entrepreneurial journey, which involved building, financing, scaling, and exiting companies, I could not find a resource that was founder friendly and I could not get the type of support that I was seeking. So as a result, I made a ton of mistakes along the way. So if you're looking to raise capital or you are looking to get your company acquired or just need some sound financial planning and you're looking to get the best possible outcome in the shortest period of time, feel free to learn more by visiting us at PantheraAdvisors.com or just reach out directly and shoot me a note at Alejandro at PantheraAdvisors.com. Alrighty, hello everyone and welcome to the Dealmaker Show. So super excited today with the guests that we have. I mean, incredible story, incredible journey, and obviously incredible outcome too. Uh, but we'll talk about that as well. So without further ado, let's welcome our guest today, Emery Wells. Welcome to, welcome to the show. Thank you. Thank you. Thrilled to be here. So let's talk about your journey a little bit. So you were born and raised in Miami, Florida. So how was life growing up there? In Miami, Florida, I, you know, I'm not a huge fan of Miami, so that's why I, pr I probably don't live there today. I think it was a fine place to grow up, but I, I yearned for, you know, Miami's changed so much, by the way. I think that Miami's obviously having a, I don't know, is it second or third or fourth coming even, you know, since I left 20 years ago, Miami is uh, having a renaissance. So I can't really speak to the Miami today, but I think the Miami that I left almost 20 years ago, I think I was, I was yearning to be in a you know, around people that, you know, we're just, we're, we're just out to accomplish bigger things. And I think at that time, Miami was a much more laid back kind of city. And I, I wanted to be, I wanted to be in the action. So let's talk about you moving to New York City. How did that happen? Yeah, I moved to New York City shortly after graduating high school, I was all set to go to college, uh, as most people are when they graduate high school. And I was going to go to New York to, to college in New York City. But about, I don't know, about a month before I was supposed to move, I decided I didn't want to go to college. And I was kind of hanging out in Miami for another year or so after that, doing, uh, doing random things. But I ultimately decided to move to New York City anyway, to pursue a dream of becoming a filmmaker. And I had a very classic New York City story. I had $500, didn't know, how, didn't know where I was going to stay, didn't know how I was going to survive. And uh, I made it work. And so uh, I started working as a bartender in the restaurant industry. And, you know, that was kind of my film school because I didn't go to film school either. But a lot of people in New York City in the in the restaurant industry tend to be involved in, you know, in media, in filmmaking, there's actors, there's filmmakers. And so I happened to work at a place that was full of other people that were pursuing their dreams, just like me. And so that was kind of, uh, you know, my, my, my network. Uh, or film school, if you will, where I was, you know, working with those people to make music videos and, and short films and things like that. And ultimately, you know, over the course of, of many years, I was able to get myself into 
into the media industry. And ultimately, ultimately, I was able to start my own post-production company, which went on to do a lot of fun stuff. I used to do all the digital shorts for Saturday Night Live and everything that was pre-recorded for them. Did a lot of broadcast advertising, things like that. So in this case, I mean, before we even, you know, like continue further, I mean, how, how did you develop this love for filmmaking to begin with? Well, the real story is when I was, uh, I think, you know, I think heartbreak tends to play a big role in, in our lives. And I was, I was dating somebody when I was a, you know, a teenager, I was 18 and we broke up and I was very heartbroken about it. And I, I was, uh, I, I thought my, my big idea was I'm gonna make a video uh, about how, you know, how much, how great our relationship was. And I'm going to win her back with this, with this video. And again, this was, you know, 20 years ago, 20 plus years ago. And so the ability to make a video back then was not at all like it is today. I mean, it was a science experiment, you know, having a video camera ingesting digital footage into a computer, editing it, all of that was expensive, complicated science experiment. And I fell in love with the process of making video actually, you know, during that time of, of trying to trying to make this, I don't know what I would even call it, this this win her back video. Um, and I, it was through that process that I, I realized I absolutely want to be a filmmaker. This is amazing. I love this expressive medium. I feel like I can, you know, all the ideas that I have in my head, I feel like I can share them through this, this process of filming stuff and, and editing it and choosing the music that has the, the feeling that I'm feeling inside. And so that, that was really the start of it. And in this case, I mean, when you were in New York City, bartender as well, to be able to, uh, to, 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 to make a living and make a month meet, I mean, I'm sure that that was, that was very uncertain for you. You know, new city, you know, no money. I'm, I'm sure that that also has developed uh, your character and your personality quite a bit. And, and also how you've been dealing with uncertainty too as an entrepreneur. Yeah, I guess it. I mean, I, I'm sure it has. I, I, you're absolutely right. I mean, I, I had, I had very little certainty or stability, and I've always been comfortable in that environment. Uh, I've, ha I've never, I've never been, you know, adverse to taking risk, which obviously you have to do uh, over and over again as an entrepreneur. And so, yeah, I think that 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 did make me comfortable with a lot of the, a lot of, a lot of unknowns and a lot of instability. And in your case also, uh, there was one pivotal moment or one or one interesting moment, which was you becoming the owner of one of the first uh, red uh, red cameras. I mean, what what was that about? Yeah, I think I've always I've always tried to you know I've always tried to to be at the forefront. I think throughout my career, I've always been at the forefront of the, the technology changes that were happening in in the video industry, and I've I've done this a few times. And uh, I, I was the owner of one of the very first RED cameras. And so for people that are listening that might be unfamiliar, um, this, this camera called the RED camera, which is made by a company called RED Digital Cinema, was a really transformational piece of technology in, in the camera industry. Uh, this company was founded by Jim Gennard, who's the founder of Oakley. And he'd sold Oakley. And he decided, you know what, I want to build a camera. And people said, you make sunglasses. Like, you're not going to build the world's most advanced digital cinema camera. But, you know, th at this time, this was, I don't know, early, you know, kind of mid, mid to early 2000s, um, something in that time frame, the, the digital cameras that we know today really didn't exist. Um, you know, feature films and, and episodic television and everything that was high end was still shot on film. The digital cameras just weren't good enough. And uh, he built this camera called the Red Camera. 
it was one of the it was it was 4k resolution which at the time was absolutely absurd people were were at that time still arguing whether or not we needed hd and this camera was a 4k camera it was file based it shot to these digital media cards it was it used a fundamentally everything about it was different and there were a hundred of them that were produced in the first year the camera existed and i owned one of them and so i found myself owning this piece of technology that was super transformative and everyone in the industry was trying to get their hands on it, wanted to shoot with it. And immediately, you know, there was just all these other things that had to be figured out. All the all the professional video workflow basically broke when this camera was released because um, it was file based. It had these it had this different sort of uh, way of handling uh, color information. And so you just had to every literally everything changed. And I just started figuring out. Uh, how to support the workflows that these professional post-production companies needed to to use this footage. And I, uh, I, I was able to kind of use that, owning this camera as a catalyst to starting my own post-production company, which I eventually did. And I mentioned, you know, went on to, to do some really fun stuff like all the Saturday Night Live digital shorts. Nice. And, and obviously you, were, you had like your projects here and there, but uh, definitely starting your own post-production company was, uh, was a really big one. Catabatic. So, uh, tell us about this company. It's, look, it's very. It was a very typical kind of boutique post production company. It's a lifestyle business. You know, as, as I said, I I found myself at the intersection of a lot of interesting kind of changes that were happening happening in the industry, and so I just was able to figure out what people needed and solve problems and offer services. It's a services based industry. You're trading time for money, and you know we did all kinds of post production services. Uh, editing, visual effects, motion graphics, color grading, dailies, kind of, you know, full service post-production. And uh, I grew a great lifestyle business, you know, I was making north of a million bucks a year, just had a couple, couple employees. And um, I could have, I could have sort of stuck with that for, you know, for many years, or really for my whole life and, and retired. Um, you know, I built it from the ground up from nothing over almost a almost a decade. And by the time I eventually shut it down to focus on Frame.io, it was, uh, it was you know thrown off a lot of cash. But I knew there was, um, I knew I knew I wanted to to aim for something bigger, and I knew if I if I were to achieve that, I, I had to put my full focus on, into it, which which ultimately led me to shutting down that company to focus on Frame.io. And uh, and at what point do you realize that? Because I mean, I mean, if you were already making north of a million bucks. I mean, that would be anyone's dream, especially. You know, keeping in mind that you came to New York City with just 500 bucks in your pocket and you needed to do a bartender no? to, to be able yeah. to make ends meet. So, so uh, I mean, walk us, you know, all the listeners do on, on that moment where you realize, I think frame, you know, is the way to go. It's time right now to shut this down and I need to go full, full focus on frame. Well, look, I, you know, I think that we've all heard the saying "big risk, big reward." On, on the, the people who who have been the most successful in you know in their lives just continuously take on risk, and um, you know, I, I think about I think about some of the risk that Elon Musk has taken on throughout his career. Uh, you know, I just went through this acquisition and, and to Adobe, and obviously was a really incredible outcome, and I think. I, while I've taken risks like shutting down my post-production company that was making a million dollars a year to focus on Frame.io, that was a big risk. But you know, I think about somebody like Elon, who um, maybe you know when when he had sold PayPal and had a similar outcome to what I'm experiencing now, and he took which which is which is you know pretty substantial. 
And he risked it all and put all of that money into SpaceX and, and Tesla, which were enormously, enormously risky. It, you know, that blows my mind, right? So as you maybe asked me this question about, you know, how was I comfortable taking on the risk of shutting down this lifestyle business to focus on Frame.io? I think of somebody like, like Elon, who, <laughs> you know, ri risked, uh, you know, decades of work and at net worth into Tesla and to SpaceX. But you just got to keep doing that. You know, if you want to go bigger and you want to achieve more, and it's not even about the money. It's, 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 about, it's about outcomes, outcomes and achievement. Like, I, I love creating stuff. I love having big outcomes. And um, the bigger the outcome, the higher the risk. And how did Frame.io come knocking? That's an idea. And what was that process from incubation to bringing it to life? Yeah, so my co-founder was a was an employee of mine at my post-production company, and we started building Frame.io as an internal tool for ourselves at that company. And so, you know, we were very deeply intimate. We're Frame.io Frame is a video review and collaboration product. It, it helps teams collaborate while they're working on video, and it was a problem space we we knew intimately. We we weren't building something that we kind of thought you know should exist, or we we knew it needed to exist, and we knew the problems very intimately. And so we started building it, and it was actually you know. This was my, this was our, this was me and John. This was our first like big software project. We had done smaller scale software projects prior to this. We had built a little iPhone app together, but we were both, uh, there was, there was, you know, building, starting Frame.io was both our investment and in wanting to do some larger scale software and learn and also solve this problem that we knew really, really well. But I, I can't say that I had like the grand vision for Frame.io then that, you know, that, that exists now. You know, I think it would have been pretty difficult for me at that point, almost 10 years ago, to say confidently that we were going to sell to Adobe for north of a billion dollars. That's certainly not how the project started. But as we were building it, um, you know, we continued to gain confidence in our ability to execute. We thought we were building something really good. We were really, build, we were really good at building software, really good at designing software. And that, and that was just that, that just built our confidence. And so you know, we, a, a, after a couple of years building it internally, we realized, one, everyone that has the problems that we have at my post-production company, everybody has these same problems. Everybody that makes video shares the exact same set of challenges. And we had built something really good. And so we said, you know what, we should really try to do this. We should really take this out to market. And, um, and we had, so we launched it, we announced it publicly, and we had this viral launch campaign, which uh, you know, probably don't have time to get into the details of that. But we did this, this, you know, a lot of launches can be viral. They have these sort of like, you know, mechanics of, you know, share on social. And, you know, we had this whole gamified point system to get early access and everything. So we had this viral uh, announcement, and that got the attention of Silicon Valley. I didn't know anybody in Silicon Valley. I was in the media and entertainment industry. I didn't know anyone in tech. I didn't know anyone that worked in tech. Certainly didn't know any investors. But this viral launch got the attention of investors because we wound up, this viral launch wound up getting us on the front page of Hacker News. We were the number one story on Hacker News. And that used to be, you know, and probably still is, but that used to be prime ground where investors would sort of be looking for interesting products, interesting startups, entrepreneurs. So we were on the front page of Hacker News and I got a lot of inbound. I got a lot of inbound from investors. But I'll tell you here, one little growth hack that actually worked really well is when people signed up. I think a lot of companies do this now, but when people signed up for our for Frame.io, you know, this this initial announcement, when they dropped their email in, we did uh, a timed automa automatic response from me. So 15 minutes after you signed up, you got an automatic response from me that was like one sentence. It looked super plain language. 
didn't have any unrespond, like, you know, unsubscribe, anything like that, which, you know, was not compliant with how you're supposed to do email. But <laughs> it looked very organic. It was like, hey, I noticed you just signed up. You know, like, why did you why did you sign up? And I got from that literally thousands and thousands and thousands of personal responses. And it was because of that little, you know, that little email engagement that I was able to start conversations with some of these investors. Because, you know, some of these investors might have been, oh, I'm going to keep my eye on this. I'll drop my email here. But they got that auto message from me. And so, you know, 15 minutes later, they responded back like, oh, I'm so-and-so from Andreessen Horowitz. Looks really interesting. Um, I wouldn't even have been able to like necessarily scan all the emails. I tried scanning all the emails of people that signed up, but there were, you know, we had like 15,000. That is what started conversations with, with investors. And we, you know, uh, actually my very first pitch was at Andreessen Horowitz. And we tried to, we tried to raise money before we launched the product. This was this, this announcement that I'm talking about was just simply that it was an announcement. It wasn't an actual working product. And we tried to raise money, um, from the kind of momentum that we'd built off of this announcement. And uh, it didn't work. You know, we, 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 we pitched and people said, wow, like, because we had, we'd had a, a working product that we could demo, we weren't live in market yet. And we pitched and people said, wow, incredible products, like super exciting. Uh, come back to us when, you know, people are paying. And so I did a big round of pitching, did, you know, 10, 15 pitches that, that went nowhere. But then we, we actually launched. And when we launched, it was a very different conversation because we had really early traction. The first 90 days of launch, we were doing 30,000 a monthly recurring revenue or something in the first 90 days of launch. So really, really strong early traction. And then when we came back to investors and pitched that story, it was very different. And uh, we had wound up having a very oversubscribed and competitive deal that was, uh, that was led by Excel. And that, that anointed us, that put us into Silicon Valley. Now we were, you know, we were anointed by Silicon Valley, put us on the track. And we just continued to see really phenomenal growth in those first, you know, that first year and those first couple of years. And so we wound up doing, um, you know, our, our, our last round of fundraising prior to being acquired was a, a Series C in November of um, November of 2019. And how, how much capital did you guys raise up until the acquisition? We raised about 100 million bucks all in. A little over a hundred million. Got it. And 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 in those investors that you were attracting, I mean, what what were you looking essentially? You know. In okay, I'll tell you this about investors. I wasn't looking for anything. I was looking for money, which I think was what a lot of people <laughs> are looking for when right. they're when they're trying to get trying to get funded. I feel really really fortunate that I wound up getting incredible people and partners, and not just money. You know, a lot. There's so many challenges that people have when building companies. I mean, you know, it's just like a constant string of fires and issues and you know everything but one of the pro i never had i never had board member problems our, our investors were so supportive um such great partners and uh and super thankful that i wound up getting money from really good people because as i think back you know to all the pitches i did i think back um and i'm like wow i think i really dodged the bullet not taking money from that person i don't think it would have been a good fit on the board you know, when, when you're early, you, you, you will take money from anyone. Like, you know, it's so hard to get that initial seed round or whatever, like you're basically willing to take money from anybody. And I, and I think that's kind of right, you know, in a way, I mean, if you're not taking a board seat in those early rounds, I don't think it really matters. I mean, they're signaling from who the, who the investor is. If you take, you know, if, if, if you get money from a C-level investor, that signals to A-level investors that, there were, you know, you couldn't get the attention of A-level investors. So there's other dynamics there, but uh, assuming that you don't 
give up a board seat. I think getting money to get the business going is the most important thing. Yeah. But the moment you 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 have somebody on the board, you really really do need to to consider you know who these people are and choose them very carefully. But I I wound up having a great board. So then let's talk about the um, the acquisition you know by Adobe because obviously the incredible outcome. I mean, you definitely gave those investors the 10x return that they, that they typically look for. So so let, let's talk about that. How did the acquisition come about? Yeah, so initially came about with uh, Scott Belsky, the chief product officer uh, of Adobe Creative Cloud, reached out to me on Twitter, actually, and just said, hey, like, it would be great to connect. We should we should chat. And of course, I, I'm always willing to have those conversations. And we connected over Zoom. This was during... This was... Um, in March of this year. So kind of like peak pandemic. And so I connected with him. He shared pretty forthright. He, you know, shared that he'd he'd be interested in having a potential acquisition conversation. He didn't quite say it that way, but it was pretty forthright. And we started a series of conversations of just getting to know each other. And I think that that's we spent, I don't know, you know, three, four, three, four, five meetings, took long walks in the park. We went, he lives in New York City. I'm in New York City. So we went to we took a long walk in Central Park. We walked along the West Side Highway. We we walked many parks. This was a pandemic, so no offices. Right. So we had a lot of outdoor park walking meetings and we got to know each other. And we talked about talked about the future of video. We talked about, you know, some of the some of the things that he's working on, had been working on at, at Adobe and just the world of of SaaS in general. And we realized that uh, you know, just product philosophy, things like that. And I think through that conversation. I really came to one, you know, respect him as a as a as a product leader. I think he's he's a fantastic product leader, and I think we had a shared vision for the future. And so that opened the door to the next part of the conversation, which starts to get into some of the financials and things like that. Um, and that's when it kicks off with, you know, negotiations and bankers and board and M and A team and all of that. And so. You know, there's a lot of uh, maybe can't quite get into the dynamics of that, but suffice to say, it's a fascinating experience. I, I, as hard as it was, it was which it was. It was incredibly, incredibly um, stressful process to go through, but super fascinating to see, to see how that all works up close. Because yeah, no you know, I, certainly, I'd never done that before. And what was the uh, what was the price of the transaction? One point two eight. Is that it? One point two seven five billion. One point two seven five billion. Wow. And and you were mentioning that the that the first day contact happened in March and the transaction happened in, in August. So I mean in the closing. So I mean how long was it was it like fast from that first um, you know conversation to then all of a sudden you find yourself in the middle of an acquisition process? Yeah, there's a, there's a series of steps. So the general steps, which I think are, are true for most acquisitions, are you you know you, you have whatever initial conversations you have and in in this case you know you're getting to know each other you're building trust uh, things like that and then there was some some lightweight diligence where they said hey like we would love to engage in in a real conversation and see if there's something here but you know to do that you have to sort of provide some information about the business so it's like lightweight lightweight diligence and that lightweight diligence leads to an LOI which is you know, very, very similar to like a term sheet. It's a high level document, material terms of the deal. So at that point, you're, you know, we've negotiated the, the material terms of the deal, including the purchase price. One of the things I would say I learned is that there are a lot of, there are a lot of really important terms of these deals. And it's one of the reasons they take so long, you know, the purchase price is one thing, but there's a, a so many uh, things to understand and, um, and negotiate. 
But that LOI or letter of intent is that high level term sheet, you sign that and that's what then begins the diligence period. And then in diligence, you're, you know, fully opening up sharing every bit of information about the company on product, engineering, finance, you know, legal HR, there's, there's a, a lot to do and the diligence. I only I only have an experience of, of this one, this one time. But the diligence for an acquisition is it's 100x the diligence for a, a fundraising round. Um, fundraising, fundraising diligence is fairly lightweight, I would say, um, for an acquisition, at least for this one, it was very intense. And, uh, and then through that, assuming uh, you're, you know, while that diligence is happening, you're negotiating the merger agreement, which is the definitive agreement that has every single detail figured out. And so, you know, legal teams are spending lots of time together and, and certainly creating some pretty big bills for both sides. And at the end of at the end of the diligence period, you sign the merger agreement and the merger agreement is, is as I said, it's the definitive agreement. But at that point, the deal is the deal is essentially done pending closing conditions and regulatory approval, which is, you know, for this deal and for, for many deals, it has to be it has to be approved for anti, it has to go through antitrust, you know, antitrust approval. And that process can take anywhere from 30 to you know 30 days to many, many months, depending on what level of scrutiny is, is applied to the deal. In our case, we wound up completing that in about 45 days. So kind of the key milestones are, you know, you, you letter of intent, then you go through diligence, then you sign the merger agreement, and then you get antitrust approval and officially close. And, you know, and, and I'm sure that the people that listen, you know, really appreciated that. Emery, uh, in this case, I mean, obviously, you know, it's super stressful doing a transaction. I mean, there's so many moving pieces, so many people involved. I mean, even just uh, even the lawyers can blow it up, you know, with getting into a pissing match and seeing who, who is right and who is wrong, you know, on the language of the agreement. I guess, you know, for you, I'm, I'm sure that there was like ups and downs, you know, in, in the process of getting this deal done. And I'm sure it was very stressful for you. I mean, how, how do you deal with stress, Emery? Yeah, I, I would say certainly one of the highest, highest, times of stress over the over the course of these of these years because you know it, it's while you're in diligence you you have to start operating the business very differently you know things if you're if you have this pending acquisition there's all kinds of things you sort of put on hold and pause and you know things that you're 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 not attending to that you need to be attending to because 90% of your time is going to the acquisition so very very stressful tons of ups and downs I don't have any secrets. I don't have any good ways of, of handling it. Uh, you know, having some good friends that you can uh, you can vent to, I think, is important. But other than that, I had I, I I wish I could tell you I meditate or do something. I don't. I just deal with the stress. <laughs> I hear you. I hear you. And obviously, you came to New York City with just five hundred dollars in your pocket. I mean, now there's certainly more than that. I mean, anything. What What was the first thing that you did? You know, when that deal was close to splurge a little bit. I haven't. I haven't splurged. There really isn't time, number one. I mean, the, after you close a deal, there's so much to do. We're in the midst of integrating the companies. And, you know, I, I need to be a, a shepherd for the team and ensure that this is happening in a way that's ultimately going to lead to our long-term success at Adobe. And so there's so much to do. I, I really, I Jen is an honest, honest answer. Like I haven't had the opportunity to splurge. So um, maybe that's still coming. So imagine I put you into a time machine, Emery, yep. and I bring you back in time to that time where you were shutting down Catabatic, 
and you were thinking about you know the idea of launching you know or really going full force with frame.io if you had the opportunity of sitting down with your younger self and give you that younger self the one piece of advice before really going full force with frame.io what would you what would you say to that younger self and why given what you know now yeah i think the the, the key learning that i would have is to is to be intentional about about the culture that you are trying to build and the the values and philosophies that are most important to you be very very intentional about building a company um around those around those values because i i didn't understand i think i i did not have an appreciation for the fact that people there are many there are people out there that just think fundamentally different than differently than me I think when you, you know, when you're building a company, especially when you're small, you sort of think, well, like I'm the boss and I'm going to hire people and they're going to sort of do what I say. And this is my company. And I mean, first of all, that's this fun. That's fundamentally not the right way to think about it. Uh, and I learned that the hard way. What you really need to do is you need to be you need to attract people who are already as aligned as possible to your values, philosophies. You know, when you look at you look at companies out there, they're, they're, companies are so different from one another. Their products are, are so different. The things that they value are so different. Like what makes them successful? What do, they choose to, what do they choose to be excellent at? You know, are they excellent at sales? Are they excellent about design? Are they excellent at, you know, whatever? Every company is different. And I think in the early days of Frame.io, I learned, I learned the hard way of hiring good people who weren't aligned. And it took some it took it took some painful events to sort of um, get the company philosophically and culturally aligned. Uh, and that's what I would have I would have given myself guidance, guidance on that. And so specifically, you know, the things I would have said is really write down the things, write down your write down your values, write down your really the real ones, not the not the bullshit ones that you're going to, you know, a lot of companies, for better or worse, a lot of company values are not so great. I really tried to, you know, to be intentional about our current, like actual official company values. But even those aside, like the things that are most important to you about the way you work, the way you make decisions, um, the things that you care most deeply about, the things that you are that are non-negotiable um, in the way that you show up in market, in the way that you, you know, whatever. Like just try to figure those out. And I, I, I didn't even know what mine were until somebody was battling me and trying to sort of do it a different way. That's what I would have given the advice. I'd say this to wrap it up. It's not only do you have to know what's important to you, you then have to systematically, you know, make them visible and ingrained in the in the culture of your company so that they so that they continue to to thrive and to grow and to be understood by every new person that comes in the door. I love it. Very profound, Emery. So for the people that are listening, what is the best way for them to reach out and say hi? Emery Wells on Twitter, E-M-E-R-Y-W-E-L-L-S. Amazing. Well, Emery, thank you so much for being on the Dealmaker Show today. All right. Thank you so much. If you like the show, make sure that you hit that subscribe button. If you could leave a review as well, that would be fantastic. And if you got any value, either from this episode or from the show itself, share it with a friend. Perhaps they also appreciate it. So also remember that if you need any help, whether it is with your fundraising efforts or with selling your business, you can reach me at alejandro at pantheraadvisors.com. You've reached the end of another episode of the Dealmakers podcast. For free resources and materials, head over to alejandrocremades.com. Thank you for listening and see you at the next episode.